0: Alrighty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. I mean, we're definitely going to have the battle of accents here, you know, the Irish, you know, accent, the Spanish accent. So why not? You know, but uh, in any case, you know, you're going to find his journey really inspiring, building, scaling, uh, financing, switching gears, you know, from one segment to another. I think that you know again you're all going to enjoy this time very very much. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Nick Boyle, welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed. It's great to be here. So originally from Northern Ireland. So how was life growing up there? Give us a little of a walk through memory lane. Yeah, it, it it's always funny because it's um I mean I still
1: live in Northern Ireland, but uh, it's always amusing. It, it always sports the question, what was it like growing up in Northern Ireland given I sort of grew up during the troubles and and the answer, the honest answer is, I didn't have anything else to compare it with. So I didn't really, I can't tell you what it was like um, somewhere else in order that I say it was good, bad, or indifferent. I, I loved it, I have to say. I, you know, okay, we, there was a bit of bombing going on, but other than that, uh, it was a completely normal upbringing. I thought everyone had to climb over barriers to get to nightclubs, and I thought everyone got searched whenever they went into supermarkets. Um, but on a serious note, I mean, one of the big pluses about Northern Ireland is the education system. Was and continues to be extremely strong, um, and I suppose that's you know a really really important foundation for anyone who's looking to do entrepreneurial uh, you know business or indeed sort of grow in in large corporates. So in that sense, I can't complain.
0: So in your case, I mean, you ended up uh, going and working in the in the finance segment. So uh, what pushed you in that direction?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. That was sort of a bit of uh, an accident. I'm I'm always a great believer that. Um, uh, no matter who you are you always end up where you are sometimes because you had a plan and most of the time because you tripped over something and it seemed um uh, entertaining so you know from my perspective i did um a degree at university and i didn't really like it so for me it was a case of um my dad was in financial services i i went literally started work with him to try and make enough money to go around the world and 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 took to it like a duck to water I, I'm, I'm still trying to go around the world. I have to say, but but you know, certainly it was an accident. It's not something that I'd necessarily planned to be in, but I loved it.
0: So what what is that thing going around the world? I mean, I I guess you know, like more than anything, how do you think that that opened your mindset and the way that you look at things? I,
1: look, I mean, I I, I I'm still a, a great lover. I mean, I've got this. I, I've still got a wide-eyed. um you know um boyish love for everything that is different i mean i'm i literally landed from sao paulo today um uh, this morning i'm in 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 singapore next week i was in um uh, australia and uh nepal um a, a few weeks ago so you know my job luckily brings me um around the world and 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 while an element of that is obviously the business itself because we've got you know transactions going on in those different jurisdictions um certainly an absolute fascination is learning about how other cultures um exist, how they perform, how they take their challenges, and how they basically turn them to their advantage and and I suppose you could argue that there's a sort of a metaphor for business in there, but for me it's just it's just a fascination on seeing how other people do what they do i mean one of the things that that i that I do and I've always done um in work is 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 to count the number of nationalities that we have which amuses some people. They sort of don't understand why it's so fascinating. But when you come from a country like Northern Ireland too, I mean, essentially we had Indian people who owned the Indian restaurant and Chinese people who owned the Chinese restaurant. But other than that, the barriers to entry meant that everyone was Northern Irish. So, you know, for, for me, having that sort of cross-pollination and that education from different nationalities is wonderful. And, and the question, the answer to the question is 53. We have 53 nationalities in Light Source BP today.
0: That's incredible. So then so then let's let's switch gears here and let's talk about Zurich. So how do you how do you land there? And and I mean, obviously, there's like a bunch of conversations that led to the next. And then all of a sudden, you know, you find yourself like really in the hyper growth, you know, mentality mode.
1: It's funny. I I I was I was working as part of a team. So I sort of started working with my dad. I was then headed on hunted to come to to. To you know, ultimately, what became Zurich because it had a number of different iterations, um, and I was a member of a team of fourteen on a Friday, and then on the Monday I was the manager of a team of thirteen because I just swapped hats, um, and and I really did take to it like a duck to water. So, um, I think in the sort of first six years I was promoted six times. So every single year I sort of got up to the the, the next level, um, and you know, and I, I because ultimately I, I found that I was good at it, you know, like all these things, you know, it's not like there was a, any particular science to it. I just sort of took to it like a duck to water. Um, and I suppose that, you know, the, 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 I suppose my, one of my, my, my points of learning there was definitely that I think unlike most of my peers, I wasn't focusing on getting to the top as I went up. I was just focusing on being the best. If I was a, Junior manager, being the best junior manager. If I was a manager, I focused on being the best manager, and 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 if you like, the promotions came because I focused on what whatever was required in order to do as well as good a job as possible. Uh, you know, to perform relative to the other individuals in the organization. Now there were five thousand individuals in the organization, so it wasn't small. And by the end, I ended up running um, a quarter of the their UK operation for them with about, um, about twelve or thirteen hundred or something like that.
0: So then, tell us, you know, whatever happened now, you know, with uh, switching gears, and and how was that process of going from a small company to nine hundred employees? Well, I mean, that that was the company
1: that I set up after Zurich. So basically, I left Zurich with three other people, uh, because we saw a gap in the market. We bought a co- small company, the three, the four of us, um, with twenty eight people, and we then grew that company to nine hundred, just over nine nine hundred two people and we sold that to AXA and and it it was it was really interesting I'd come from a small company with my dad joined a company a large company then went backwards to then start again with a small one and grew it it large but I mean and 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 I think like all of these things I think there are different skill sets that you draw upon for the you know the different for whatever is required depending on where you you sit at that time and but certainly I think that that large companies, particularly if you're funding them yourselves and organizing them yourselves, definitely bring on a level of headache that, you know, you either love or you hate. And certainly I remember whenever I, I, I we sort of sold that company to Axe Insurance, I made the statement that I was never going to have a company with 900 people in it again. <laughs>
0: Because what, what, what were you guys really doing there with the company? I mean, what was, what was the business model?
1: I mean, basically, we were distributing financial services products. So we were, it was pensions, investments, unit trusts, those sorts of things. Um, retail investors rather than, well, maybe small corporates, but predominantly retail investors.
0: And how did you guys capitalize the whole operation? We sold the,
1: the the distribution organization, which included the advisors and the infrastructure etc, to Axa, which is a large the large um french um insurance company multinational um insurance company so it was very much um their uh, distribution organization bought uh, our company to if you like complement their existing
0: and 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 you were talking about the the headaches of having nine hundred people. I mean, why so many people?
1: Well, at the end of the day, it was a volume sport. I mean, you know, you can obviously be in in, in different businesses and and there's nothing wrong with small or medium sized companies because if you find your niche and you 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 focus on, you know, the profitable areas, then you can you know, you can I, I hate to use use the expression make a lot of money, but you can be successful. But we went for a more mass market approach. Um, and that's very much the way I've always gone. I've always wanted to grow things bigger because I see, you know, I see that driving volume is a good way to, to make sure that you maximize uh, return on your efforts.
0: So then obviously you guys ended up, uh, you know, doing the exit to AXA. So how was that process like? At what point do you guys, you know, really realize, hey, you know, I think that maybe it makes sense to, to turn page here and, and, and turn chapter.
1: Like I, I think, I think you get to a certain size, a sort of critical mass, where to grow it. I mean, I, you know, businesses grow not in a straight line. There's always these glass ceilings that you've got to smash through in order to get to the next level. And I, and I think once you get to, you know, eight hundred, a thousand, twelve hundred people, then you know, to continue to grow that takes a massive amount of investment. Or the other alternative is that you actually place that business within a larger framework organization that obviously can t- allows it to continue to run at its a, 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 at its pace and obviously is supported accordingly to do that
0: so obviously as a result of this transaction you know i'm sure that you had all types of uh, non competes you know the vesting you know all of that stuff going on you know after you do a deal like this but you know in this case for you you know it sounds like you you had a little bit of money after this transaction, you know, in your pocket, and you were able to explore a bit, and also to switch, you know, as well the the segment, so that you would not perhaps, you know, compete, you know, with the prior uh, company. So what happened next? Yeah, I look, at the, the,
1: like all these things back to the point about accident and luck and being at the right place at the right time. I mean, it's always amusing that you know I I, I currently run one of the largest uh, solar development businesses in the world, and yet I can't change a plug. So. It certainly wasn't anything that was planned and and as you say i had a bit of money in my back pocket and um, i liked the idea of renewables i've always been interested in the whole you know the whole sort of you know shift away from from fossil fuels and um, and i found myself in in italy um, driving through italy in a fit a yellow fit 500 which was interesting um, with a guy who was trying to sell me uh, a wind farm and I mean, and and, and th- this sort of story seems like it, you know, because I've said I've sort of told it many times, and 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 everyone thinks it's a bit of a joke, but it's absolutely true. Um, I drove past what turned out to be a solar park, but a guy from from Northern Ireland the UK, obviously, solar parks at that point were very few and far between globally, and particularly few and far between in a country that didn't really have much of a sun. Um, and I, I I drove past uh, um, and asked what that was. He said it was a solar park. I said interesting, and and. And then, in order to make sure that I didn't get interested in a solar park, he said the investment ret- the investment returns aren't as good with a solar or with a solar park as they are with a wind park, and um, and that for him was a positive. But the next statement that he made, although he didn't know it, was a negative. In that he said they're a lot more predictable, but the returns aren't as good. And and anyone who has spent twenty years in fin- retail financial services will tell you that predictable. Has got much much more buyers, so a a a definite five percent return is much much more sellable to a mass market than a maybe ten percent return. And and that eureka moment um, didn't sound feel like much of a eureka moment at the moment at at the time. Um, is what then fueled me to go back literally to go back, um, and uh, at an office above the stables at home, and I sat for you know a number of weeks trying to fine tune how I could basically take my background, which is in retail financial services, you know, collecting small amounts from a large number of people and get that into um, uh, investment in renewable energy, because renewable energy up until that point had very much been, you know, for the large pension and for for the large infra funds. So I was sort of challenging it and saying, well, hang on a second here. If it's a predictable long-dated return, which it clearly was, it's counterparty rich because it was a government-backed feed-in tariff we were talking about. Which again is a big plus, then if I could find a way of giving a retail investor access to that, then that business model could have legs.
0: So then what happened right after?
1: <laughs> so I I I literally did that. I went and I, I I then I spoke to a couple of friends um about whether or not I could wrap the investment um in a, a, a tax wrapper, which gave me further tax advantage or return advantage. And and I um I sort of set the structure up for the business. Um, I asked a friend of mine, um because EIS, which is a, for those of you in the UK, that's that you'll know what that is. But for those of you around the world, it's basically where the the UK government gives um a kickstart to UK qualifying UK trading companies, startups, um up to a certain size. So it basically says that if if you're an individual paying tax of any sort and you invest in one of these companies. Then essentially, you don't have to pay the tax if you leave the money in for three years. So, what essentially I did was I put a tax wrap around each of the individual uh, SPVs. I set up each individual solar park as an SPV, as a UK trading company. And therefore, the investor putting the money in got all of that tax break to the point where we were actually, uh, our equity became cheaper than our debt for the first number of years until such times as the UK government realized this was a bit of a loophole. at a a very legal loophole, but they then decided that you couldn't, with a feed-in tariff coming from the UK government, also get a tax break from the UK government as well. But at that point, LightSource was up and running. We were, at that point, certainly the biggest in the UK, moving towards being the biggest in Europe uh, developer of large-scale solar. Well, large-scale at the time, not large-scale, whenever we look at things now, uh, solar assets.
0: So how do you guys make money there? So, basically, we took money
1: in uh i mean it's a very simple model where we where, where uh we we basically build a solar park we produce electricity in the, in those days there was a feed in tariff which meant the u k government guaranteed to pay us x uh per kilowatt hour um and as long as we were able to build it at a price that was less than that um then obviously we were making profit now i mean it, it actually in 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 reality what happened was a lot more players came into the market, the discount rate that people were, because essentially this was a UK government backed 25 year RPI index link revenue stream predicated on, you know, your production from a solar park and a solar park, whether you realize it or not, is a, has a really predictable um, production curve. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. And on a year to year basis, there's typically a two or three percent deviation from one year to the next. So you have a very, very predictable generation source coupled with a UK-backed or UK government-backed income stream. So the multiplication of those two came up with a very predictable annuity that pension funds and other financial institutions got very interested in very quickly.
0: Hey, guys. So pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either Feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So, talk, talk, talk to us about too, as to how you guys have capitalized the company. Well, I mean, in those days,
1: as, as we, we, we used the EIS and VCT, um, but then we did a management buyout. Um, in 2015 um, to buy out the distributor of the EIS products because they were a shareholder. They were no longer interested in being a shareholder because the, the government no longer allowed them to use those investment products. So we actually sold our golden share in a percentage of our assets. So basically, we had given the investors a fixed return. And everything over and above that fixed return, and by the way, the fixed return was just getting their money back because they had already had their tax break. So everything over and above that was for us. So we then sold um, the a significant percentage of those assets and bought out uh, our uh, investor. Now, let me just put some numbers on this here. The the investor um, had not only put money in from their clients, but also put money in themselves to the tune of about $1 million. And they received around 148 million four and a half years after they'd put their original 1.1 in.
0: Wow, that's quite the return, Nick. Unbelievable. That is quite the return. Uh, Because up until today, I mean, obviously, we'll we'll talk about BP now too. You know, between debt, equity, and 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 all these different instruments, how much money has gone into Lightsource?
1: I mean, there was probably at that stage three,
0: four billion, something like that. Three, four billion that you guys have taken in.
1: Yes, because remember, but non-recourse project finance, I mean, if you've got a predictable long dated revenue stream with a bankable counterparty, whether it's UK government or whether it's a large corporate saying, I'm definitely going to buy this off you, then you can go to the bank and get uh, uh, project finance any day of the week. And, you know, certainly our business is very much built on. Um, you know, project finance in order to actually build the assets themselves, and we've many billion, we've significantly larger number um, of, uh, of of billions of, of of project finance now. Given we're significantly bigger today, clearly.
0: So as we're here in the on the deal making, you know, side of things, uh, talk to us at what point you know BP comes into the picture.
1: Okay, so uh, it's 2015. We've just bought out our uh, investor. We're probably worth, I mean, the business is probably worth a quarter of a million pounds at that point. Um, But essentially, we're a UK business. We might be the biggest in Europe, but only from what we've done in the UK. Um, We had aspirations and a belief that we could take the business global or certainly outside the jurisdictions. But you always have that, you know, with 250 250 employees, 250 million of value, that was 100% owned by us. So, you know, it's a risk. You don't want to go rushing into something. Um, but we wanted to just check that we weren't a one trick pony, that that actually what we did was transferable to other markets. So what we did was we decided to to look at what were the two most difficult markets, in our opinion, that would allow us to say if we were successful in those markets, along with the UK, that that would give, give us a good indication that we would be successful anywhere in the world. So the two markets and very difficult markets that we chose on purpose were India and the U.S. Because we figured if we could be successful in solar in India, the U.S. and the U.K., three very challenging, but for different reasons, markets, um, then that's the point at which we would then choose to build a big business bigger and get a partner that would allow us to do that. Very quickly, we realized sort of by 2017 that it was exactly the same. Building a solar park. Is exactly the same in India, is exactly the same in the US. Yes, there are different challenges with grid and land and, and permits, but the principle is exactly the same. You just got to fill in a different form. And it was only at that point that we then sat down and said, okay, if we want to build this business bigger, um, you know, we need to get in a partner. And I mean, it's funny, we so the decision to get a partner in was step one. Um, and then the second question that we asked ourselves is: who, who are the best partners for renewable energy companies. And and it's really interesting because today, if you say I did a deal with an oil and gas company and I'm a renewable energy company, everyone will go, well, that's obvious. Everyone does that. But in 2017, that was absolutely not the case. So we sat and we thought about who are the best partners that in the future would, would, if you like, you know, if we did a deal with them, stand us in the best stead to maximize value. And we came up with the answer, oil and gas. Oil and gas companies have been powering and fueling our world for the last 100 years, and if that world is shifting towards renewables, then who is absolutely the the, the which industry is absolutely hell bent on making sure that they get in front of those new technologies? So you know, we on purpose, um, we basically worked with Rothschild, and we told them that we wanted them to go after oil and gas companies as potential partners we spoke to seven well actually we had 14 bidders but seven of them were oil and gas and for us bp were just the one that fitted best they got what it was that we were trying to do they obviously had the financial reach and the strength and the you know the connectivity with governments etc and and the other thing i think that that isn't isn't so obvious is you know becoming light source bp those two letters at the end of our name, if, you know, we don't, there's no such thing as feed-in towers from governments today. If we produce electricity, we've got to sell it to, you know, Amazon, eBay, McDonald's, Facebook, all of these, Apple, all of these massive corporates. So if I'm a massive corporate and I'm giving a third party the provision of delivering my electricity, am I going to give it to some unknown called light source? Or am I going to give this role to somebody with BP in their name who's got 100 years Um, of history, financial strength, you know, credibility galore. And so in a way that, you know, the partnership with BP was true symbiosis. For them, it got them into an area of the market they they knew was only going to go in one direction. For us, obviously, it got us, you know, financial support, but it also gave us a level of gravitas that we wouldn't have previously had had we been standing on our own.
0: So then, so, then, in this case, you know I guess for for the people that are listening, you know, like obviously given the name of the of the podcast to deal makers, how much in total has light source raised from on the investment side?
1: Well, we financially closed eight and a half gigawatts um if you crudely use a billion a gigawatt, and in the early days, it was more than that, but it's got to be eight nine billion plus plus on top of that. We last year completed another. We we did a a revolving credit facility um for 1.8 billion with 10 UK or sorry uh, uh, global banks some some US some Asia some European um and then we have another facility for a further 1.1 billion so you know it's got to be pushing towards 10.
0: Ten billion. Okay. Now, now for the people that are listening to get an understanding on the scope and size of Light Source BP today. I mean, anything that you feel comfortable sharing, like you know, number of employees or anything like that.
1: Um, we're somewhere between a thousand and eleven hundred employees. Uh, we're in nineteen countries. Uh, we're targeting to complete five point one gigawatts this year, so about five billion odd. Um, of investment this year, after doing three over three last year, um, our target for 2025 is to do 25 gigawatts of financial close, which is a big number. Um, by some people's measurements and some reports last year, they put us as the largest solar developer in the world. It really depends what you measure, to be perfectly honest. But certainly, you know, we've gone from—I mean, whenever I started the business in, in 2010, with six people we now have, let's say, 1,100. But interestingly, the the, the the interesting thing, I think that, that you know, to your point about important deals, whenever we did the deal with BP, um, and that's just five years ago, we were 270 employees. We're now, say, 1,100. We were in four countries. We're now in 19. We had 1.6 gigawatts of pipeline. We now have 55 gigawatts of pipeline. So, you know, Yes, it was good. The foundation was important. The LightSource Foundation work that we'd done in order to learn our craft. But, you know, the deal with BP to become LightSource BP and what we've done since has just taken us to a completely different level.
0: No kidding. No kidding. Now, imagine, Nick, you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of LightSource BP is fully realized. What does that world look like?
1: Well, um, I have to say it would be a very long sleep because <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna take a <laughs> lot. Um, un- un- unfortunately, the 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 idea of while some people like the idea, it's not realistic of you know flicking a switch from uh, oil and gas and you know to to renewables. It, it's simply not doable. It will take you know a number of decades to get to that position. And certainly for us, you know, the target and the drive for Lightsource BP is to put as much new Renewables into the market as as is possible. The ultimate goal, obviously, is to shift the word towards renewables. But that's not something that can take place overnight. It's you know the infrastructure isn't there. You know we've basically we live in a world where you know in the the developed world you know it's it the 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 countries are built on the premise of you know large power station in the middle of a country. And ever decreasing sizes of wires going out to the edges, and that's the way the electricity system works. Well, that's not the way it works with with, with renewables. It's different because it's all distributed. In emerging markets, you know, the, the, obviously there's a blank sheet of paper there, but in that scenario, you still have to build the infrastructure. You still got to build, you know, the grid, etc. So, you know, there's work to be done. But I have to say, the massive positive, directional positive, is that, you know, we are definitely doing something that pushes against an open door, whether it's governments, whether it's, you know, whether it's businesses, even the oil and gas companies um, are pushing towards this being the, the, the area of focus more than, you know, the maintenance of the status quo.
0: I love it. Now, imagine I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to that moment where you were thinking about making the switch from corporate, you know, thinking about, hey, you know, the entrepreneurial side, maybe I should take a look at this. Imagine you had the opportunity of going back in time. You're able to go back in time, you know, by, let's say, you know, I don't know how much, you know, that would be like maybe 14, 15 years. And uh, you're able to sit down your younger self and you give your younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now, Nick?
1: I mean, it's really interesting because I, I, there's probably two bits, and and yeah, I mean, look for for me, I I think one of the problems that I uh, that I see today is that is that people, uh, let's take CEO rather than entrepreneur, because I I but it's sort of the same thing. I want to be CEO, I want to be, and you know, I want to set up my own business, etc. I, I I think people get intoxicated with the idea sometimes too early to the detriment of, of, you know, their capability or their potential. You know, for me, the reason why, the only reason why at 42 years of age I became CEO is because that was the only point at which I believed that I actually had not necessarily done every job, but understood how every job fitted together. And, and, and certainly from my perspective, if I'd gone back further in time, I think, I would have probably said, listen, don't rush it. You know, you, you'll be ready when you're ready. Don't think at 30 years of age because of the fact you've done two jobs and you've got paid a bit of money, you're suddenly the next big entrepreneur. Now, having said that, there are industries where actually track record and history doesn't necessarily have the same value because these are areas that are, you know, um, industries that are trailblazing with sort of new ideas, um, and so it's slightly different in 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 infrastructure and in in sort of heavy in uh, infrastructure, such as you know the electricity system, but certainly for me, I think that the best advice I'd give to somebody at that age or me at that age is don't rush. Make sure that you're fully rounded in your knowledge before you go making any sort of you know decisions to jump in to to set up a business. And and I think the other one that that I sort of probably would have thought about, but not realised the degree to which its value um, exists, is this concept of surrounding yourself with people that are better than you and having no fear of surrounding yourself with people that are better than you. There's so, I mean, and by better, I mean in the area that they're good at. I mean, my job is to choreograph really smart people who are definitely better at me than me in the area that they work in, but that's not my job. My job is to choreograph those people. And I see so many people having, almost having a step back or a fear of taking on somebody because they think, shit, this guy's going to be challenging me for my job. That's the last thing you should be worried about. That's exactly the individual that you want to be surrounding yourself with because those are the people that mean that you can put yourself ahead of the game because it's a competition at the end of the day.
0: Wow, that's profound, Nick. I love it. You know, when you were saying that, I was thinking about an orchestra and you're putting all the different people playing, like mastering whatever instrument that they're playing. So beautiful, beautifully said. So Nick, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so?
1: I mean, look, LightSource BP is, uh, you know, we have our, our website there. We like to advertise what we do, given the fact that, you know, particularly our big corporates need to see what we're about. Uh, but look, I mean, I, you know, I'm based in our London office. We have 20 odd offices globally. The address is there. The email address is there. Anyone who wants to chat about whatever, then. I'm happy to, to, you know, as long as it's, it's specific and relevant, <laughs> not about something I don't know about, but I've got some intelligent people that can talk to, If it's not my area of expertise. um, But yeah, I mean, if people are hitting a brick wall or they're hitting a fork in the road and want to know, should I go left or right? I'm not saying I'll know the answer, but sometimes I might be like all these things. A mistake is only a mistake if you repeat it. So if I've done something before that didn't work while well, it wasn't a mistake, maybe I can stop you doing the same.
0: Amazing. Well, hey, Nick, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you very much indeed. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business,